I have a confession to make this morning. And I hope it won't disturb you terribly. But, I must confess that this morning, our hymn for the day, In the Garden, used to be one of my least favorites. There was a point in my life, I I was pretty young and, and fairly certain of everything. And I was stricken by how intensely personal this song is. There's a lot of, well, it's all about I and me in this song. The joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And I just thought, that's probably not great. But then I learned the story behind these intensely personal words. And folks, they are intense. And unless you truly understand what this song really is about, it can be a little off-putting. It was in 1912 that music publisher Dr. Adam Gable asked C. Austin Miles, who was a pharmacist by trade, who happened to write hymns, to write a hymn text that would be sympathetic in tone, breathing tenderness in every line, one that would bring hope to the hopeless, rest for the weary, and downy pillows to the dying beds. Now, there's something different about this song than any of the others we've looked at this time in our our journey through these sins. And it's not just the intensely personal. See Austin Miles actually recorded rather in depth how this song came to be written. And it gave me a completely new perspective on the song. He said, one day in March 1912, I was seated in the dark room where I kept my photographic equipment and organ. I drew my Bible toward me. It opened to my favorite chapter, John 20, whether by chance or inspiration, let each reader decide. That meeting of Jesus and Mary had lost none of its power to charm. And he said, as I read it that day, I seemed to become part of the scene. I became a silent witness to that dramatic moment in Mary's life when she knelt before her Lord and cried, Rabboni. In other words, he's saying, as he read the text, it was almost as if he were transported to that moment. He said, my hands were resting on the Bible while I stared at the light blue wall. As the light faded, I seemed to be standing at the entrance of a garden, looking down a gently winding path shaded by olive branches. A woman in white, with head bowed, hand clasping at her throat, as if to choke back her sobs, walked slowly into the shadows. It was Mary. As she came to the tomb upon which she placed her hand, she bent over to look at it and then hurried away. John in flowing robe appeared, looking at the tomb. Then came Peter, who entered the tomb, followed slowly by John. As they departed, Mary reappeared, leaning her head upon her arm at the tomb. She wept. Turning herself, she saw Jesus. So did I. 
I knew it was he. He She knelt before him with arms outstretched, looking at his face, cried, Rabboni. I awakened in full light, gripping the Bible with muscles tense and nerves vibrating. Under the inspiration of this vision, I wrote as quickly as the words could be formed the poem exactly as it has since appeared. That same evening, I wrote the music. So understand what's going on. Miles, as he's reading, is caught up in the story. And at that intensely personal moment, he saw it played out, and he's writing this song from Mary's perspective. To understand this song, that's the way we need to look at it. Mary, who's come to the tomb, expecting to finish the burial process for Jesus, and discovering he's not there. When he wrote this song, Miles certainly fulfilled Gable's request. In the Garden has probably been one of the most popular pop gospel songs ever written. Possibly second only to the old rugged cross. The hope that it is given in times of hopelessness. The rest is given to the weary. And the comfort to the grieving is beyond comprehension. I'm pretty sure that at least one person in this room beside me has been in a funeral where this was the song chosen to bring comfort to the family. The inspiration comes from a passage of Scripture that is truly hopeful and comforting. So I ask you to please stand as we look at the text that inspired this gospel song. John 20, 10 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. May God bless the reading of his word, and you may be seated. In our text, the risen Lord appeared to Mary Magdalene. And in doing so is recorded one of the most beautiful passages in Scripture that point not just to Mary's hope, but eternal hope in Christ. You see, I believe that Christ is with us in the difficult times of life. 
He's here to give us life more abundantly than we could have ever dreamed. And today I want us to consider some certainties in life that are revealed in our text that will help us to see how the living Jesus can help us as we walk with Him in our own personal gardens of hopelessness. And I am going to warn you, the first two certainties you might not want to hear. So let's take a look at what God's Word reveals. It is a certainty that life will often bring disappointment. We need to understand that. And most of us in this room are old enough, you've known this already, haven't you? It is certainty that disappointment will come, no matter how much we hope it won't. It's important to see that all of Mary's hope in Jesus lay buried in a tomb. I had a professor, J. Terry Young. I was his fellow for a couple of years. He used to say at that moment when the women were going into the garden to prepare Jesus' body for burial, finishing it, that they were not carrying Easter lilies singing low in the grave he lay. The reality is, Jesus was the one who set Mary free. He was the one who made life worth living. And now she's faced with a grief that was overpowering, fierce. This one she had hoped to be Messiah, this one who had given her so much in life, was now gone. And in her experience, that was something permanent. The reality is for us, and as we go through this life, our hopes sometimes seem to crumble at our feet. We had such big plans. If I were to ask you how many of you today, well, over the age of 16, how many of you today can look back to what you thought you were going to be doing at 16 and you were in fact lived your life doing it? Not many. The reality is plans for financial security disappear in the presence of a weak economy. Marriages fail in spite of having pledges until death do us part. Health declines in the golden years. And all those things, all those plans we had about retirement and all that we would see and all that we would do, for some it comes true, but for others, those golden years aren't so carefree. Health issues and other things come along. Now what I'm going to tell you next, I do not want to sound like a platitude. I don't want it to sound like a Hallmark card. But it is a hope that we need to hold on to. Life can move forward in spite of our disappointments. (coughs) Now people handle disappointments very differently. Some will simply try to be strong And take life's blows. Invictus, one of the most arrogant poems ever written that we, maybe all of you had to read. My head is bloodied but unbowed. That's the way a lot of people try to face life. But after a while, if it gets bloodied enough, they bow. Others, facing life's disappointments, 
sometimes decide on the final solution. And there are those who decide to end their lives. So what do we do? When life doesn't pan out the way we thought it would or hoped it would, what do we do? We follow Mary's lead. Because even though hope was gone, what was she doing in the garden? She was looking for Jesus. She was looking to do her last act of honor and love for this one who had rescued her. Now she didn't know all that was going to happen. We've got the whole story. So my word to you today, when life disappoints, and eventually it does, we need to seek to find where is Jesus in the midst of our struggles. Where do we find Him? Where do we come to understand that He is ministering and and, and not abandoning? How do we know? And so we set it in our hearts disappointments are here. I don't understand what's happening and I don't know why that's happening. I don't know what God's going to do. But my faith declares I'm not alone. And I'm going to keep pressing on. Not in my own strength. When Miles wrote, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses, the reality is in a lot of our disappointments, we come to them alone. Or at least we think we're alone. And then comes the second certainty that again is not the most cheerful of thoughts. It is a certainty that we will not always understand or recognize the Lord's handiwork. We're not always going to understand it. We're not always going to recognize what God is doing because He is an infinite God and we are finite humans. And the reality is Jesus reaches out to Mary in a really beautiful way. And she still didn't get it. At first, as Jesus spoke to Mary, her grief was a barrier to recognize the Lord's handiwork. Woman, why are you here? Who are you looking for? And we're told she looked at him and she thought he was a gardener. And then she looks away. And how do I know she looks away? Because in a few moments, we're going to be told she turned back to him. So she's looking at Jesus face to face, but in her pain, she can't see and she turns. Now, some have said that Jesus kept her from recognizing him. That's a possibility. But I believe her pain was just too intense. Her experience was death is final. And the only one she's ever known to break that experience was Jesus. He was the one who raised Lazarus. He was the one who raised Jairus' daughter. But there's no one here to raise him. He's dead. He's gone. She stood face to face with the Lord Jesus. But she just didn't know him. It was, it was too big of a stretch for her mind to handle. And her hope, even though she saw him, her hope is still shattered. And whether we want to admit it or not, because most of us want, 
You ever notice how we try to put a good spin on ourselves no matter how we, we, we try. But the truth is, God can be hard to see in the times of life's struggles. Life hits us between the eyes and we're looking for answers. We search for answers to our questions, but the answers don't seem to come. We do everything we can think of to hear the voice of God. We pick up our Bibles and we start reading for texts that will answer our questions or at least give us a principle. But sometimes it's so painful, we're having a difficult time even letting the Word seep into our hearts. We, we seek advice from those we respect, hoping they can reveal what we need to know. We want comforters to come. And I'll remind you, when Job's comforters came, the only time they comforted him was in seven days of silence. But we want somebody to just sit us down and give us the answer. We try everything we know, and the struggle to hold on to our faith intensifies. We feel like we can't hold on to the rope anymore. And our life begins a descent. Well, folks, what happens here? We have a choice to make in those times of darkness. We have a choice. And it's a pretty straightforward choice. We can choose to give up. At one point, Job Ask, what good is it to pray to God? We can give up. Or, we can choose to trust. John of the Cross lived in the 16th century. He wrote one of the most important works of classical Christian devotion of all times. Now, I will tell you, It's been used by Christians across denominational lines. I have read it and am in the course of rereading it even now. Uh, It's not an easy book to read, written in the 16th century in a style we're not used to. But it's an important word because John described the sense of being unable to make connection with God. And most of us at some point in our life have felt this. If not yet, we will. We feel like God is on the far side of the universe that our prayers aren't getting above the roof, and we wonder where He is. He seems to be silent. But John encouraged followers of Christ not to lose hope in the times of darkness. He said we need to try to understand that the God who feels absent loves us and is with us even if we can't feel it. And he said one of the most beautiful statements I have ever heard in my life. The endurance of the darkness is preparation for great light. Fast forward several centuries. 19th century England and Charles Spurgeon, often called the Prince of the Preachers, said the Christian sometimes sinks very deeply in sore trial from without. Every earthly prop is cut away. What then? Still underneath him are the ever 
everlasting arms. He cannot fall so deep in distress and affliction, but what the covenant grace of an ever-faithful God will still encircle him. So when life is hard and it looks like there's no way out, let us choose to hold on to the truths we have come to know that He has delivered us in the past, that He has made Himself known to us, that He saved us, gave us a life worth living. Let's hold on to the truths of how many times we've seen within the Word of God and in other people's lives, God come to the aid of His people. Let's hold on to truths we know even if we can't feel them. Because the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. We hold on so that hope can be born. And if you've been waiting for me to break this line of thought, here it comes. It is a certainty that the Lord will always know us. This is one of the most beautiful and tender moments in Scripture. He had already asked her the question, who are you looking for? Why are you crying? But now, Jesus speaks again. And when Jesus spoke, he spoke and brought hope back into the life of the one he knew and loved. She is turned back to look in the empty tomb. And Jesus says one word. Mary, he calls her by name. And in that one moment, hearing him say her name, recognition floods into her heart and her life. Her Lord's alive. And she knows it. And she turns to him. He knew her grief. He knew her pain. He knew her sorrow and He spoke peace into our heart. We need to understand this, folks. We need to truly grab hold of this. Regardless of our feelings, the Lord Jesus will never abandon us. He will never abandon us. He knows our fears. He knows our joys. He knows the very intentions of our hearts. And He knows when we've lost our hope. He knows when our faith has faltered. And in knowing all of that, He still loves us. Even knowing that our hope is just about gone. He loves us. This one great truth can sustain us in the midst of the dark nights that challenge our faith. He knows me. He loves me. And He will not abandon me. Now we may not understand what He will do. I've prayed many a prayer absolutely knowing what God needed to do. And I've been prayed many a prayer He didn't do what I thought. 
He chose a different way. We may not understand what he will do. And we may not understand when he, we, he will act. I've told you before, I am, I've been praying my entire adult life for a great awakening in this country. And it hasn't come. And I will continue to pray until God gives me a clear sign that it's too late or He takes me home. But we can affirm. Remember when I told you, Job asked, what difference does it make to pray? Job was being told by his friends, if you just repent, everything would be all right. And Job keeps insisting, I haven't done anything to repent from. This Job, who had, I love the book, it says, he never sinned with his lips. But at one point, and it's a paraphrase, but it's an accurate paraphrase, Job tells God, you need to come down here and talk with me. You've got some explaining to do. This same Job, who's lost everything, declares in a high water mark of the Old Testament with an understanding and a wisdom that was light years above most of the people. Very few people had hope that there was anything after death but a shadowy existence. But in Job 19, 25 through 27, Job declared, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand on the earth and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Myself will see Him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I know that he will ultimately receive me. Paul Claudel of our own time said, Christ did not come to do away with suffering. He did not come to explain it. He came to fill it with his presence. The truth is, folks, we are not promised an easy life here. Becky was absolutely right. Jesus said, if you love me and you're going to serve me, you're going to have trouble. The servant isn't greater than the master. We are not exempt from the pain of life. But what we do have is a promise we see with Mary and we hear in Miles' words. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me, I am his own. He knows us. And finally, in a moment of incredibly godly wisdom, why would he not have godly wisdom? He's God, very God. He looks at Mary and tells her one more thing that reveals our certainty. It is a certainty that Jesus will have a task for us to do. In the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our struggle, he'll have something for us to do. Now the King James translation of verse 17 sounds harsh. Jesus saith unto her, touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. Don't touch me. Now, I will remind you, in the same book of John, shortly following this, he will look at Thomas, dear old doubting Thomas we call him, But all of them doubted, folks. All of them did. 
John is the only one who believed before he saw Jesus, but he had to see the grave clothes to believe. He tells Thomas, touch me. So clearly, unless Jesus ascended right after he talked to Mary and came back, which the Bible does not indicate, we need to know there's a difference, and the difference is this. The word translated touch in verse 17 doesn't mean a casual touch. It doesn't mean reach out and put your hand on me. It means to seize, to cling to, to hold on to, as NIV translates it. In other words, Mary is apparently at Jesus' feet with her arms wrapped around his legs like she's never going to let him go. I lost you once. I'm not losing you again. And she's holding on very tight. Very similar. The Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John go up on the mount with Jesus. They fall asleep. Next thing they know, they wake up and there's Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. And, and Peter just burst out. Let's build some tabernacles and stay here. Jesus said, we can't. Elijah and Moses disappear. The truth is, Jesus did not let Mary spend the rest of her life clutching to him, afraid to lose him again. Don't hold on to me. I'm going to be ascending to the Father. You can't keep me here. My time here is over. And I'm going to go to the Father. But I do have something I want you to do. You need to go to the disciples and tell them what you have seen and heard. Now notice, Jesus did not tell Mary, go and convince them I'm alive. Don't go and give them a three-point sermon on how Jesus is resurrected. You just go and tell them what you've witnessed. And Mary eagerly did it. She ran back. He's alive. I've seen him. And he said this. Folks, what I think this tells us, something extremely important, we must not lose sight of who we are in the struggles, in the time of struggle. Now, I've already said we need to remember who Jesus is. We need to remember his love for us. But we need to remember who we are. Folks, we are sons and daughters of God Almighty. We have been brought into the family of God. We are disciples of Christ who have been promised life and that more abundantly. We are those who are called to press on to the prize laid before us, to keep moving forward, to keep reaching the goals that Christ sets before us. And when we do that, when we pursue to become all that God wants us to be, then we will find our meaning for life. We will find a reason. We may not have all the explanations, but we will come to understand at least this much. In all of this, God has been moving me forward. In all of this, He's been preparing me for the task He has called me to do in this world. 
because very straightforward, as simply as I can put it, to the willing soul, Jesus has purpose to fulfill. The disciples are locked up in a room afraid. And they need to know Jesus is alive. And there are still plenty of people out there in the world that we come into contact with constantly who need to hear that Jesus is not a figment of our imagination. He's not our wishful thinking. He is the risen Lord who gave His life that we could have life. And He lives. I know that He is living. There are many thirsty souls out there who need a drink of the living water. And there are many people out there who are facing the disappointments of life. And they're doing it on their own. And they need to know that Christ cares. So let us be willing in times of struggle or joy to obey our Master's call to go and tell. I'd stay in the garden with Him, though the night around me be falling. But He bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling. Mary, you need to go and tell. He's saying, Danny, you need to go and tell. All of you, you need to go and tell. So today we're faced with the reality that life is often hard and cruel. We will all face disappointment. We can be sure of that, whether we like that or not. That's the way life works. We will all probably come, if you haven't already, face to face with doubt. Uncertainty of God's presence. But we must work beyond the doubts and reach out to the glorious certainty that Christ will always know and love us and always have a place for us in His plan. So, if you're hurting today, if you're in the midst of disappointment, your prayers have not been answered the way you wanted, you've been struggling with doubt, will you let Jesus minister to your brokenness? Will you let the knowledge that Christ loves you and gave Himself for you give you peace and hope that in His timing He will move 